get chill bumps a lot of times when we sing that song just because I think about God's power and what He's done in my life and how He's changed my life and how He is still in the life-changing business. And when word gets out that God, that the God who changes lives meets here and dwells, dwells in the lives of the people here, I'm telling you, folks, we'll be breaking down the doors to get in here. Because that's what, when life change happens and word gets out about life change, it's like a magnet drawing people because they want to know what changed your life. And that's what this whole series is about, this, this Life Hurts, God Heals series. Um, last week we started off and we found out that, that pain is universal, it's just not always evident, right? Now, when you stub your toe in the middle of the night, it hurts, Right? Pain hurts. That's duh. You know, physical pain hurts. We could all talk about physical scars and physical pain hurts. But physical pain is nothing compared to the emotional pain that's represented in this room. Um, nobody escapes it. It doesn't matter how pretty you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what job you have. You could even come from the perfect family and you would still have pain in your life. And so what that means is all of us need healing. And what we said last week was, regardless of of what pain you are facing, regardless, the steps to healing are always the same. And so um, we're going to talk about some more of that today. Our root problem, we said last week, is that we want to control things. We want to control problems. We want to control people. We want to control our pain. And what that really means is we try to play God in our own lives. We try to be God of the universe of our life and try to deal with our pain. And we said that the more insecure you are, this is kind of a hard word to hear, the more insecure you are, the more you try to control people, pain and, and uh, circumstances in your life. So step one, we said in this road, road to healing is this. Get help. You know, this is the God heals acrostic. Get help. Admit that I'm not God. And, and the verse we looked at was uh, Matthew 5, 3, and it says God blesses those who realize their need for him. Now, we said you would already have changed things if you could, so you might as well admit that you're powerless. You wouldn't still have the problem um, if you could do something on your own. So step one is really the reality step. Step two is the hope step. Step one is reality. Step two is, is hope. Step one says, I admit I'm helpless, I'm powerless. Step two says there is a power. All right, here it is. Step two, open your heart to God, recognizing he is the only one with power to heal your pain. And at this step, you say, I know that God exists, that I matter to him, and he's the only one with the power to heal my pain. There's a TV commercial, and I don't know if you've seen it. It's for this SUV, and, you know, every SUV is supposed to be better than every other SUV. But on this particular one, there's a group of four guys, and they're going to go whitewater rafting. And the whole message of the commercial is that if you buy this SUV, your life will be an adventure. You can get anywhere. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's just sheer cliffs. Somehow, magically, this thing is able to drive up them, and you can go to the best places to go whitewater rafting. So these guys are talking the whole way about Category 5 rapids. We're going to do Category 5. It's going to be this big deal. So they get there and they get out and they see this humongo, dangerous rapids. I mean, it's probably got a name like Death Rock Destroyer or Grotesque Pain or something like that. You know, it's probably the name of the deal. And they look at each other and they're like scared. You know, the, the color drains out of their faces and they go. One guy says, if we do like a category two and a category three, would that add up to a category five? And the other guy's like, yeah, yeah, good idea. And so they take off, you know, luckily they realize that they are in way over their heads. You know, they realize that they can't do this on their own. And 
See, I tell you this because I told you a couple weeks ago about my whitewater rafting experience, right? I didn't tell you everything, though. When you go to the whitewater rafting thing, you come into the rental place, and what they do is they, they sometimes show you a, um, a video about death on the river. Um, they, they want you to see things like people coming into the rapids and coming out bloody, you know, and bodies floating down the river and, and life vests with no one in them floating down the river. I think they're trying, you know, to, to make you a little bit nervous. And then they say, now we'd like for you to sign this waiver form. And this waiver form says, you know, you could die, you might not die, but you can't, you can't sue us. You know, your guide may try to stab you in the heart with his paddle, but you can't sue us. It's in there. It's in the fine print somewhere if you read it closely. Those types of things, because they don't want you to they don't want you to come back and sue them later. And so, you know, I'm thinking, OK, I've got all these teenagers on this trip. And if you're below 18, you can't sign for yourself. You have to have the, the leader of the trip sign. And I'm thinking most of these kids, their parents want them to come back alive. And so I was getting a little bit nervous. There were a couple that it was questionable, but um <laughs> I, I knew they, you know, most of them wanted their kids back alive, so I'm, I'm a little bit worried about this. And then, like, this river rat dude comes out. He's our guide, the one that's going to be in our boat. And I'm like, so, uh, how many times have you done this? And he's like, man, I live on the river, dude. You know, that type of thing. He's got the river rat hat, and he goes, no problems, man. I'll take care of you. And what he does is he sits us down in the raft on dry ground, and, and he has us go through all of the safety procedures. You know, and I think that's the only time the girls in my raft ever even made the paddling motion. But anyway, we won't go there. Um, and he, he says, here's what happens. If you fall out, you just stick your paddle up in the air and within 10 seconds, I'll be there. I'm like, have you ever rescued people? Yeah, man, all the time. Never lost anybody. You know, he's just like the little G God of the of the river universe, you know. And so I'm like, OK. This guy took what was insane because I'm taking it's me and, and, and one of my friends taking six teenage girls whitewater rafting. I mean, it's because we had these other rafts as well and nobody would take these teenage girls. So we had to, you know, the sponsors had to. And so we're like, OK, I'll trust you to get us down the river. And so he takes what is insane and he makes it sane. And that's really an example of steps one and step two. Step one last week was I can't. Step two is someone else can. Step two is opening your heart to the fact that God can. You see, God wants to be your guide in life to help you in the healing of your pain. He wants to guide you and redirect your life around some of the problems, the rocks and the problems that you're going to face in your life. You cannot maneuver on your own. That's step one. Some of you will never get to step one because you're saying I can do this myself. I don't need any help. And you're thinking you're God of the universe. And because you keep living the world's way, you get deeper and deeper into your own pain as you try to maneuver your own life. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, think about that. What in the world? This is the greatest sermon ever preached. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what we call the Beatitudes. And the second Beatitude, and that's what we're looking at, is a different Beatitude every week for, for eight weeks. And it contains the steps to healing. What in the world does mourning have to do with healing? Um, what does it have to do with the recovery from pain? Well, here's the key. When I let down, this is on your listening guy. When I let down, I open up. When I let down the walls around my heart, when I grieve, when I mourn, I open up my heart. Just think about a little kid. When little kids are hurt, what do they do? They run to be comforted. You know, whatever reason a little kid cries for, you kick his puppy, he falls off his bike, whatever it is, 
Little kids start crying and, and they run into the house. Who do they ask for? Mom. What's up with that? It's not like mom's stronger. Well, what do they know? <laughs> Kyle says, yes, she is. Um, do what? They want comfort. See, you, you learn this just real soon after you come out of the womb that mom is the comforting one and dad's like, suck it up, be tough, you know, that type of deal. You know, you're not hurt. You know, I don't have to amputate. I mean, to give you an example, when, when you were a child and you were throwing up in the middle of the night, who's the one right there next to the toilet with you? Mom, where's dad? Snoring. He's asleep. I don't even know till the next morning one of my kids has been sick. Because what they'll do is they'll come into my room at night. And I'm a real light sleeper, so usually I can hear things. But they have, they have developed the ability to be stealth. They'll walk into my room and they'll tap Janie on the shoulder and then they run out in the living room. And they'll stand in the living room waiting until she gets there. And I said, why do, they, why do y'all do that? And they're like, we do not want to wake you up. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not that bad. And they're like, well, mom's better. You know, that type of deal. And so I'm like, okay, I'll stay asleep. Mom can clean up the puke. And, and Janie's at the point now, she's just like, just get it in the pot. You know, if you just don't come tell me, throw up. Get it in there. Then come tell me and I'll comfort you. You know, my mom was the type. She's like, (laughs) I'd go tap my mom years ago and say, Mom, I'm sick. Well, did you throw up? Yes, ma'am. I made a mess. Well, clean it up. (laughs) There was no comfort in my house. So that explains a lot about why there's no comfort coming from me. Um, But we won't blame that all on my mom. Now, when I let down as a little kid. And when I let down as an adult, you think about when somebody really mourns. Then they're open to be comforted. I've seen this at funerals. Did a funeral just last week where I saw some people really mourning over an 18-year-old who, who died in a car wreck. And when you mourn, your heart is open to be comforted. Um, so you have to open up your, God, your, your heart to God if you're going to begin this healing process. Each week I want to show you an interview of somebody who, real people with real pain. This week we're going to see um, an interview with Ann Sokolowski. Listen to what she has to say. called Life Hurts, God Heals, and what we're doing is we're asking real people about some of the pain in their life. So when you think about pain in your life, what comes to mind? I think of having an absentee father who just wasn't ever there, ever. Um, he, him and my mom met when my mom was 16, he was 10 years older, and I rarely had contact with them growing up. How do you think that affected your life? For the longest time, I didn't think it affected me at all. I think I was very prideful, and I put up walls, and people would ask me questions, and I pretended it didn't. Um, I think it made me angry towards male role models in my life. And and when I was in high school, um, I realized that I had problems with God, too, because of him being a father figure. I could never actually pray... um, you know, my Father in Heaven that was absent. I could pray to Jesus. I could pray to God. But I hear, would hear other people say, you know, our Father in Heaven and bow their heads. And those words just couldn't come from my mouth because I didn't have a father and I didn't know what that meant. Mm. Did this just affect you or did it affect others in your family? 
Um, I can see clearly with my two younger brothers that they're classic examples of what a missing father is like. Well, the oldest one, he's 26, and he never identified with a man. He never learned to do manly things, and he's now living the homosexual lifestyle. And my younger brother, who's 21, is just a very angry individual. No one in particular, just the whole world. He's just angry. And you, you trace that back to not having a father figure in the home. Right. They, they, don't, they don't know how to identify. And I was angry for a lot of years. And, and I didn't realize it. But I, I, when I did, probably late 8th grade, ninth grade, I began to pray about it. And it took probably 7, 8 years for God to deliver me from that anger. Um, I think I would give it to him and take it back. I pray about it, and um, I was really bitter, and um, it just took a lot of, a lot of prayer. Were there any other things that helped you get over it? I mean, were you able to share with anybody? Did you have a church that you could go to? What else helped you? Um, my mom was never. We never stayed in one place long enough to have a great church family around us. When I started um, junior high, the last year of junior high in eighth grade, I started going to a Christian school. And then I went to another one in high school. And I think that's when God really began to reveal to me that I was angry and I had issues. And there were so many great male role models there and teachers that I began to see what a healthy Christian home looked like and that men weren't bad and they didn't leave their families and that they could love their wife and they could love their children and I remember writing in my Bible you had to have a Bible when you started school and I prayed for my dad's salvation I wrote it in the back and it was like September 1989 and I prayed so diligently for it for a long time and then I forgot you know um, I just kind of gave up on him and then about Five years later, we ended up at um, Second Baptist Church in Houston, which is a big church. And I saw my father, who didn't know I was there, walk down the aisle and make a profession of faith. And um, I was just stunned to see how God had led me to this place, because we were supposed to be out of town. And just to open your eyes during the invitation and see that, I didn't know what to think, you know. I didn't run to him and say anything. I, I think I was just struck. You know, that six years later, I saw that. And right before Stanley and I got married, I went and talked to him. And he apologized for not being there. And he came to our wedding, but he didn't walk me down the aisle. I didn't feel that was really his place. He didn't know me, and he didn't know Stanley. And um, so I don't have a great relationship with him now, or really a whole lot of contact. But I can say that. God really healed me of that pain. Um, one of the verses in Psalm that meant so much to me was he says he's going to be a father to the fatherless. And I would pray that verse all the time. And that just that comforted me because I knew God was going to be my father and fill that void. And I can look back and see what he did. He protected me from me. He protected me from other people. And... Um, and it also says, even when my mom and my dad forsake me, God says, I'll be there. And, and he was, and I'm thankful. Um, I can remember praying, you know, starting in sixth grade, every night for a husband, for a godly husband. 
because I didn't want to make those same mistakes that I'd seen around me. And I knew how bad I'd hurt. I never wanted my kids to hurt that way. And he did. He gave me a, a godly husband. And, he, you know, he's... He, he, I can just say that I don't hurt. I don't cry over those things anymore. I don't cry over not having a dad. I don't cry over him not being there and missing all the major events. He never... I think he may have come to one or two birthdays my whole life. Hmm. And um, the only time he ever called me on my birthday was after Stanley and I got married. And I was 21. And he called and wished me happy birthday. And um, I found out later it was because Stanley called him and said, Today's your daughter's birthday. You should mm-hmm. call her. And um, that meant so much to me that Stanley knew how much that cared. You know, because when we first got married, I was an emotional wreck, and I'm just thankful that Stanley stayed with me, you know, and helped me mature through all of the emotional damage that I brought to our our marriage. And um, So even though you had experienced healing from your dad not being there, there still was some pain, there still was some, some pieces to your life that you needed to put back together. Yeah, I didn't know how to. I didn't know how a healthy marriage worked. I didn't know how. I, I mean, my mom had been married and divorced four and five times, and various live-in boyfriends, and my great grandmothers have both been divorced. Um, I didn't know what a marriage looked like. I didn't know how to talk to a spouse. I didn't know how to be a wife. I didn't know any of that. So even though I had unpacked my bags that came with me. Um, I still had the bags, and I didn't know how to get rid of that. Mm. Didn't know? know what positive things to put into right. your life to replace them. Right. Wow. So if if there were someone hearing this, sitting in our service hearing this, that maybe they, they still haven't dealt with those issues, what would you say to them? Don't stop praying about it. Um, every day ask God to help you. That was the only thing I had. You know, I read through Psalms over and over again, and, and that was a great comfort because it talks about how he's going to be a father to the fatherless. And even though your parents forsake you, I'll be there. And, and that that's what made the difference, is knowing I had a Heavenly Father, knowing I could pray, and knowing he really cared about me. So you had hope, and that's what carried you through those really tumultuous years was the hope that God was going to do what he said he was going to do in the Bible. Right. I had to have faith that he wasn't lying. Yeah. You know, because I was a Christian. I, I made a profession of faith then at 12 years old. And, um, I, you know, I just had to have faith that he meant what he said. And he did, you know. I have friends that are the same age and have gone through the same thing, and they still cry. Grown men who miss out having a father but I can say if he came to my house today I'd make dinner for him and let him meet my children you know and not be angry so how do we move from chaos and pain in our lives to hope how do we move to healing first step Number one is recognize God as your loving and healing higher power. Your loving and healing higher power. Now, I don't generally refer to God as higher power. That's kind of an Alcoholics Anonymous type deal. 
But what we're doing in Celebrate Recovery, several of the steps um, are similar to the things in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when you when you really think about it, this higher power is something bigger and stronger than I am. Um, and this higher power has a name. The higher power's name is Jesus Christ. And that's that's what Celebrate Recovery will specifically talk about. I read about a girl named Kelly who had been going to a youth group. Uh, she wasn't a Christian, but she'd been going. She'd been hearing about, you know, having a relationship with Christ, not religion, that type of thing. Um, but but when anybody mentioned anything about any problems, she said she might have. She'd say, oh, I don't have any problems. You know, no big deal. I can deal with my life. Uh, as I want to. So she was in denial. Well, one night, Kelly goes out and she gets smashed. And um, the youth minister had given her his card one time and said, if you ever have any questions, anything like that, just give me a call. Well, Kelly gets drunk and she's walking away from the party. She's in the street, walking down the street. She has to go to the bathroom. One o'clock in the morning, she walks up to this lady's house, knocks on the door and says, can I use your bathroom? Now, this lady <laughs> happened to be a Christian, a neat lady. And she said, sure, come on in. So the girl goes in, goes to the bathroom, passes out on the uh, bathroom floor. Lady doesn't know her name, doesn't know anything about her. So she picks up her purse and she just she's going to try to find some identification. She finds this youth guy's card, calls him up in the middle of the night. He drives over, gets Kelly, takes her home. Uh, home situation is a whole other deal. Parents out of control, you know, the whole bit. Takes her home, gets her settled in. He comes back to see her the next day and he says, Kelly, you got a problem. We got to get some help. Takes her to one of those hospitals that, that deals with recovery. And um, this wasn't a Christian hospital. So when she started doing the 12 steps... They said, you need a higher power. Well, the youth guy decides he's going to go to one of the meetings with her. And he hears about this and he, and he thinks, you know, oh, man, her higher power. I'm going to ask her about it. So he says, tell me about your higher power, thinking she's going to say Jesus or God or something like that. And she goes, well, they, they told us if you don't believe that God is your higher power, just to pick an object. And that can be your higher power. And he goes, so what is your object? And she said, that doorknob. Um, I'm focusing on that doorknob. It has the power to heal me. Now, can I suggest to you that that your higher power is God who created this this playground we call Earth? God who loves you, God who is pursuing a relationship with you right now. Um, the Bible tells us that we cannot escape God's love, that you specifically cannot escape God's love. And God is knocking on on your life right now. He's knocking on your heart. And, and you can say whatever you want to about why you're here today, but I'll tell you why you're here. God is knocking on your life. God is a passionate pursuer of those that he loves, and he's pursuing you. You are the object of his affection. The Bible tells us in Romans 8:38, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Now, when you realize God as your loving and healing higher power, one of the things Anne struggled with was seeing him as father. It took her a long time to begin praying our father, because a lot of times we project on God the image that we have from our parents. And that's not healthy. God is the perfect father. He is the father to the fatherless. She quoted that verse. Now, when you when you recognize that God is your healing higher power, then you are giving birth to faith. You're putting your faith in God that you can't. That's step one. But step two is God can. 
You're giving birth to faith. Well, what is faith? Here's what the Bible describes it as. Hebrews 11.1. 1. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. What did Anne talk about? She believed the Bible. She couldn't see those evidences in her life, but she kept praying. And now she can say that she's been healed. She said she was talking to Stanley the other day and she said, you know, it's been almost 10 years. You know, I'm really glad you stuck it out these 10 years. And she was asking him because I said, what is Stanley's home life like? She goes, Ward and June Cleaver. She said it was the perfect life. And I said, do you think that maybe God prepared him so that he would be ready for you? She goes, that's exactly what happened. He, He was able to love me unconditionally and they're building this healthy life. Now, there's a difference between belief and faith. This is a real big deal. I find very few people that don't believe in God. There are statistics that say 98% of people in America believe in God. There was a Time magazine cover several years ago saying science discovers God. But there's a difference in belief in God and faith in God. Anne talked about that faith. There's a story about a tightrope walker called the Great Blondin. The Great Blondin back in the, in the early 1900s. He was this guy. I read a lot about him this week. This guy was really kind of crazy. He strung up a tightrope across Niagara Falls against the uh, across the Horseshoe Falls. And just because he wanted to, he goes walking across it. Well, of course, that drew a crowd. And so this guy did all kinds of nutty things. He, he went out one time and actually sat down in the middle of the rope and had a glass of wine and a sandwich. Um, he just he never liked to do the same stunt over and over. So one time he decides to get a wheelbarrow up on the, the rope and he says to the crowds, huge crowds there. He says, how many of you believe that I can take this wheelbarrow across the falls and back? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, they want to see a dude go across the wheelbarrow. So he does. He walks across and he comes back. Crowd's going nuts. And he says, how many of you believe that I can take this wheelbarrow across with a person in the wheelbarrow? Yes, we believe. We believe. And then he says, of those of you who believe I can do it, which will be the first to get into the wheelbarrow? And one report, the quote was, all you could hear was the wind blowing. (laughs) Now, faith would have been getting in the wheelbarrow. The Bible tells us that demons believe in God, but they're not in the family of God. There's a difference in belief and faith. I would say that the majority of you believe in God, but do you have faith that he loves you and that he wants to work healing in your life? Um, He can provide healing to the pain. Do you believe that? Now, here's the cool thing. It doesn't take much faith. The Bible says Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20. I assure you, even if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Nothing would be impossible. Um, That's a little bit of faith. That's a tiny bit. A mustard seed is very small. But I know somebody's going to say, well, I don't have your faith. You're a pastor. So what? I'm a normal person. I don't have the faith of a Billy Graham. So what? That's not what the Bible says I have to have. It says I have to have just a little faith in God and he'll do some incredible things in my life. I've got to recognize God as my loving and healing higher power. Then I can make this statement. God, I believe that a power greater than myself is waiting to be my personal savior. Faith is the light switch that turns on the power in your life. You've got to trust God that he's going to do those things. Well, here's another thing. Number two is trust God 
that God loves you and he has the power to heal you. This is the faith part. Now, some of you might be in this category. You might say, well, sure, I believe that there's a God. I believe he's powerful, but he's not personal. Um, I believe that he's powerful. He created this world and then he just kind of left us on our own and everything else happens by chance. That's called the deist view that God got everything going and then he just took off and he's just letting us, you know, do our own thing. That's called the deist view. And I want to say to you, if God is impersonal, then we're in big trouble. I don't think you can get more personal than Jesus Christ, God taking on skin and coming to live amongst us so he can tell us how to get back to God. That's just as personal as you can get. And the Bible tells us that God wants to have a personal relationship with us. And when you have that relationship with God, then you move from being someone who just believes in God to being a member of God's family. You see, everyone here is a creation of God, but not everyone here is a child of God. You are a creation of God by the mere fact that you were born. You become a child of God because you're born again. Just like you have a physical birth, you have to have a spiritual birth in order to enter into God's family. Now, when you accept that God loves you and he's crazy about you, it's going to set you free on a path towards healing. Jesus said this, John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The pain that some of you are in right now is bondage. It is wrapping you up. It's chained you to your past, to mis mistakes you've made, to circumstances, maybe even to people. And, and it's tearing you apart. When you know the truth that God wants a personal relationship with you, it will set you free. Then you can make this statement. I invite God's power to work in my life. Step one says, I can't do it. I'm not God. Step two says, I open my heart to somebody, God, who's more powerful and who can heal me. Now, here's the third thing that you need to do to move towards healing. Start taking small faith steps toward change. Y'all ever see What About Bob? You know that movie, What About Bob? I love that movie. In that movie, he is so nutso that every one of his psychiatrists quits, you know, and re refers him to someone. Several of them get out of the profession altogether because Bob is just unbreakable. Well, he finally gets to this last doctor and the doctor's written a book called Baby Steps. And Bill Murray actually reads the book, you know, in one night and he says, this is great stuff. And he really starts taking baby steps, you know, walking across there. That's kind of the idea we're talking about. Take some baby steps towards God. Some of us are, are dying. Our life is really in a pile. You're saying my life is a mess. I have pain. I'm addicted here. I have this problem. And, and then you say, OK, God, I'll give it a week. I believe what Doug said. You know, I prayed the prayer. I'm a child of God. I give you a week, God. And if you don't heal me, fix me in a week, I'm out of here. And then you just sit there and wait on God to do something. That's not how God works. God responds to people of faith. God responds to actions. Faith is really putting into action what you say you believe. You can tell me what you believe all you want. When I see your lifestyle, I'll find out real quickly what you have faith in. Now, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, there's, um, there's a story about Joshua. There's a book called Joshua. And I don't know how many of you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, but maybe you saw the Ark of the Covenant and you, you know about that kind of deal. Well, in this book, Joshua is leading an army and the children of Israel are about to head into the promised land. And God told Joshua to do a strange thing. First of all, he said, I want you to, to get the priests and I want them to take the Ark of the Covenant. You got the picture of the Ark there, Alex? Here's the Ark of the Covenant. 
the, the priests would carry this by the poles because they weren't allowed to touch it. If they touched it, they would die. So they were supposed to pick up the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence in the midst of the people. And they were supposed to walk into the Jordan River. Now, this is the same people who 40 years earlier had gone across the Red Sea. You know, they're all up against the Red Sea. The, Israel, uh, the Egyptian army's coming, going to kill them. And they're going, oh, no, what do we do? And they start praying. Moses raises his arms and God says, brings the, the waters back and he says, now walk through. I'm, I can imagine if you're in the ocean, you see these walls of water, you know, you're thinking, oh, this is kind of strange to walk through this. But God said, go through it. When they did, they were delivered. But in this instance, God didn't open up the water ahead of time. What he said was, tell the priest to pick up the Ark of the Covenant, walk into the Jordan River. When the soles of their feet touch the water, then I will make a way. Now, show the picture of the Jordan River. Ordinarily, the Jordan River looks less harmful than the Natchez River. You've been across the Natchez River. Next time you go out to, to Jacksonville, just look down in the river and you see it. Ordinarily, that's what the Jordan looks like. But it says that when God told the priest to do this, it was at flood stage. Flood stage is more like the Trinity River when it's flooded. I've been on both rivers. The Natchez is nothing. The Trinity River, you better have a very trusty motor because your trolling motor isn't going to do it. I've tried that. When I couldn't get the motor started, Caleb and I are just flying down the Trinity River when it's flooded, going backwards. And I'm trying to pull that thing and I'm trying to get the trolling motor to go across the side. The Jordan River at flood stage is like that. I'm a priest. Can you go back to the Ark of the Covenant? Ark of the Covenant is metal covered in gold. Inside are some of the treasures, some of the things that they have carried with them. The rod of Aaron and, and a sample of manna, a jar of manna. This is heavy. I'm supposed to go up to the flooded Trinity River and step my sandals feet in. Now, if I'm the one millionth person back there at the back, you know, I'm going, oh, I'm glad I'm not a priest. If I'm a priest, I'm, I'm walking up there going. OK, God, you told us to do this. Here we go. <laughs> and when he stepped in, you know what the Bible says? That the river was opened up 15 miles to the north. 15 miles. You think about all the little tributaries, all the little streams. God dried it up and it says they walked across on dry land. It was a faith step that got the miracle going that they needed to happen. And so what God is saying is we've got to have enough faith to trust him that he's going to do some things He's going to do what he says that he's going to do from everything. I know everything I've read, everything I've studied in the Bible, all the people I know who've experienced healing and talked about it for six years. She prayed about her dad. It was longer than that before she experienced healing. It does not happen overnight because the problems in your life did not happen overnight. The problems in your marriage did not happen overnight. The, the folks who come into marriage counseling and think they're going to get fixed overnight. There is not a lot of hope for them. You've got to deal with things one at a time, and it takes time to overcome that stuff. And God responds to you as you take those small baby steps, those faith steps. Second Corinthians says this. It is not that we think we can do anything of lasting value ourselves. Our only power and success come from God. Can I suggest that if you're in pain, maybe it's time to try something different? You know, one definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Some of you have been trying the same thing over and over again. You've been medicating your pain with drugs or alcohol or, or sex or whatever it is. And can I suggest to you that all that's doing is getting you more and more in bondage? 
Why not try taking a, a faith step towards God today and allow him to do something? I guarantee you, you're going to have different results if you step towards God. People have said, oh, I can't do it. It's too hard. Yeah, it is. It is hard because you've got 20 years, 25, 30 years of pain. And it takes a while to, to heal from that. I know folks that, that say, well, the pain will go away. No, it won't. Pain doesn't go away. You may stuff it down, but then what happens is you become an abusive parent or you wreck a marriage because of stuff you never dealt with from years ago. It needs to be healed. Pain doesn't go away. Listen to this passage, Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you never heard or understood? Don't you know that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows faint or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to those who are tired and worn out. He offers strength to the weak. Even youths will grow, uh, will become exhausted and young men will give up. But those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. They will fly high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You may grow tired. You may grow weary. But God doesn't. God's going to bring healing in your life. But He works in conjunction with your faith. Faith is this. Here's faith. I'm going to trust God's timing in the healing of my pain. I'm not going to jump up and down. I'm not going to shout. I'm not going to get all upset. If God doesn't do it in a week, I'm going to trust God's timing. So step one is get help. Admit that I'm powerless. I can't do it. Step two is the morning step, the hope step. Open my heart to grieving. Open my heart to God. He's the only one that has the power to heal my pain. Hebrews 11:6 says this. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Underline that, that last phrase. He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. You've played hide-and-go-seek, right? A lot of you have been playing hide-and-go-seek with God. God's not the one that's hiding. You've been hiding. You've been denying your pain and running from God. I pray that maybe today you'll open up your heart, and it may be the first time that you've opened your heart to God. You've believed in Him for a long time. Now open up your heart to God and believe that He has the power to heal you. And one last thought. The Bible says that the demons believe and they shudder. They're afraid of God and they're not in the family of God. Take your faith in God and trust that you matter to him and he, that he's the only one that can heal your pain. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you you chose You chose this series a long time ago. Months ago, you began preparing me, showing me that there's a lot of pain that in my life, in my wife's life, there's pain in this church that's not been dealt with. And we've got, we've got to have some, some supernatural power applied to our lives. God, we've been trying the Band-Aid thing and it's not working. We're hemorrhaging. And so we need your power to experience true healing. Father, I pray that, that people today would just take a moment and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to get in the wheelbarrow. I'm going to trust you to heal me. And God, there may be some people that have believed, but they've not ever put their faith in you. Maybe today's the day.
Would you speak to them now? If you've never really put your belief, your faith in God, would you just say this prayer in your, quietly in your, in your mind? Would you say, God, as best I know how, I give you my life. And I trust you to do what you said. If you've been far from God, if there's some pain that you need healing from, would you say, God, I need you to heal this pain because I can't do it. Would you just admit that to him? He already knows. Your family already knows. Just say, God, I need healing from this pain. I can't do it. I prayed that prayer this morning. God, I, I am powerless. I keep messing up. And I'm tired of it. And I'm trusting you, God, to do what you said. Would you take your registration cards for just a moment? Just.